Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Come experience what the Constitution means to me at Paramount's Copley Theater in downtown Aurora from October 4th to November 12th. Tickets are available starting at $40 online now at ParamountAurora.com. What the Constitution Means to Me is hilarious, heartbreaking, and insightful. This Pulitzer Prize-nominated play shows the fight for freedom and equality is never done. Be bold with us for What the Constitution Means to Me, October 4th through November 12th. Tickets starting at $40 on sale now at ParamountAurora.com. That's ParamountAurora.com. Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, September 22nd starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back investigative reporter, now writing for Block Club Chicago, Rachel Hinton. The Ben Jarofsky show is proudly presented by the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, any kind of questions that might be running around in your little mind there. About Chicago, head to chicagoreader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. It's that simple. J-O-R-A-V is in victory. S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Not My Fault Friday, and here's why. Uh, it's actually, oh, what a week, but uh, not my fault is on my mind because it's the first item uh, that uh, I will discuss. Uh, and this was not on my list of items to talk about like what went down this week when I reached out to the distinguished uh, Rachel Hinton, excellent investigative reporter for Black Club. Yes, she's working for Black Club now. I know you a lot of wait. Wait, wasn't Rachel Hinton on when she was at PGA? Yes. Now she works for Black Club, okay? Uh, and uh, so when I first reached out to Rachel, this was not on my mind. I really want to talk about Garda World and the contract and Tenth City and the last article she wrote for BGA, which is an excellent article I urge everybody to read. Uh, but then this story broke. Fran Spielman did an interview with uh, outgoing uh, police chief, interim police uh, superintendent, uh, Fred Waller. And if you guys listen to my show, you know I was obsessed with the Chicago White Sox shooting. And I think I had a certain luxury with being obsessed about it uh, because, first of all, thank goodness no one was seriously hurt. No one was killed. So it's I could just treat it like a mystery. You get what I'm saying? It was like a mystery. It was baffling. And you remember how many conversations I had, ladies and gentlemen? I mean, every guest would come on the show and they go, all right, you got to answer this question. No ducking, no dodging. What was that all about? Just refresh your memory. There was a moment, I think it was October, uh, October, August 25th, a few weeks ago at White Sox Park. Sox were playing. Terrible season they've been having. Let's not go down that road. Uh, and all of a sudden, one woman um, felt uh, like a, a pain in her leg and another woman felt a pain in her uh, uh, belly area and uh, one had been grazed by a bullet and the other with the leg had been struck by a bullet so two people hit uh, by a bullet and police could never figure out 
where the bullet, who shot the bullet, uh, where the, or whether the, the bullet was fired from a gun inside the stadium or outside the stadium. And they had all these investigators talking about, it's kind of scary. You know, you, I mean, you go through metal detectors to get into White Sox Park, Bulls games, Bears games, all sporting events. You go, you, you're patted down. Like, how did someone get a gun in there? And was like, it was just a mystery. What was, what had happened here? Uh, and um, uh, the, the uh, top cop, Fred Waller, uh, took the fall. So the issue he was addressing specifically is why didn't the White Sox uh, stop the game? Why they let the game continue? Uh, and um, here's what Franz Spielman wrote. Pressed to pinpoint who dropped the ball and whether to call the game or not, potentially endangering the crowd of 20,000 plus, Waller fell on his sword. Quote, I am over the police department at this time as interim superintendent. If you want to place blame, you can give the blame to myself. Put it on me. I'll take that. When I look myself in the mirror, I probably would have given that directive no matter what the directive being to shut down the game. And uh, I'm going to tell you what I think, ladies and gentlemen. I think he's taking the fall. I think. And by the way, I owe this to uh, Brendan Schiller. So, like, I, Brendan Schiller, uh, Helen Schiller's son, freaking cast on this show, poker player extraordinaire. He's left the city of Chicago and moved to Vegas. He knows when to hold him. He knows when to fold him. When he came on the show, he happened to come on the show. Uh, at the time, this was a news story. I go, come on, brother, what do you think? And he goes, in my, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to paraphrase, paraphrase him, but he goes, in my estimation, when there's an inexplicable thing like that, generally it means that it involves security, police. And his theory was that the bullet had been inadvertently fired by a security guard, and nobody wanted to, they realized it wasn't a threat to the people in the ballpark because it was an inadvertent release of the gun, of the bullet. Uh, they realized there was no active shooter. They realized there was no reason to clear the ballpark. They also realized it would look really embarrassing to admit that a uh, security guard had inadvertently fired his gun. So they just let the game continue. There's no reason to shut it down. There's no active shooter. There's no threat. There's no danger. But they don't want to admit that that's what it was that's the brendan schiller theory and i gotta tell you folks uh, you know i'm kind of leaning in that direction i just gotta confess that i'm leaning in that direction uh and furthermore in the article by Franz spielman they make a point of noting that jerry reinsdorf uh chairman of the white Sox, has emphatically stated he doesn't see any way in the world that the shots could have come from inside the ballpark i urge everybody to check out my interview with del marie cobb she also was forced to weigh in on this. And man, she just went off on that one. Uh, and I just, you've got to listen to Del Marie. I can't do justice to her theory, but they're always blaming the neighborhood. Uh, the South Side neighborhood is essentially Del Marie. Oh, he's blaming it. Oh, yeah, it could have been somebody in the ballpark. It had to be the South Side. That's Del Marie is great on it. And here's what Waller said, quote, I won't say inside or outside the investigation is complete. I spoke to Mr. Reinsdorf, and I know that he feels very strongly because he has to protect his brand. That is really well stated, Waller, Police Chief Waller. He goes, here's what he said. He goes, I talked to Mr. Reinsdorf, and I know he feels very strongly because he has to protect his brand. Not, I know he feels very strongly because he's closely investigated this matter and has come to the conclusion that there's no way it could have been inside. No, <laughs> he feels very strongly because he 
wasn't born last night. He realized it could be problems if there were guns fired in the stadium. So better stick to his story that they were from outside the stadium. You can see, ladies and gentlemen, why I will never tire of this story. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on Rachel Hinton. She's been sitting there very patiently listening to me. First of all, welcome back, Rachel. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. No ducking, no diving. Your thoughts on the White Sox Park shooting? Um, I do enjoy reading these stories and seeing the response on Twitter. I love that everyone gets their tinfoil hat out, polishes it off. Uh, I love a good tinfoil hat theory extravaganza. Um, I don't know. I, I'm waiting to see what this investigation brings. Um, you know, there was the theory earlier on that, you know, maybe the women smuggled it in and some belly rolls, uh, you know, accidentally the gun went off. Uh, their lawyer says, like, absolutely not, emphatically no. Um, and until, like, we get something more concrete, it's just, like, back and forth. And as a political reporter, I guess former political reporter, um, I do love a good he said, she said. That keeps the news cycle going day after day. You got the Monday story. You got the Tuesday story. You got the, like, months later, almost a month, a full month that this happened, what, August 25th, you said? We're still talking about it. Um, So I'm excited to see what becomes of this. I was kind of surprised that Fran got the uh, fall on the sword a month later. Not surprised that she got it, but that it happened. Um, Not surprised at all by Fran's ability to to get news. But why not say that earlier? Why not come out with like, hey, we should have stopped the game. There should be, you know, perhaps a more thorough, more complete investigation coming out soon. People want to know. You want to know specifically what's going on here. Yeah, no, people want to know, and I stand by my. It's really the Brendan Schiller theory. I mean, I'm taking all the credit for it, but uh, he's he's having to fall on the sword now as opposed to a month ago because there was no reason to close it down. Yeah, they knew who shot it. They knew there wasn't an active (laughs) shooter. I thought they knew. Uh, That would be amazing. Oh my god, what a scandal! That'd be something like. Just imagine this. If they knew it was an inadvertent shot fired uh, by a police officer or security guard, let's just say, let's just throw that out there. But they closed it down anyway and let everyone leave and force everyone to leave just to cover it up. That would, So that would have been pretty scandalous. Uh, by the way, shout out Tom Shuba, a Chicago Sun-Times reporter. Uh, I talked to him about this as well, and he has probably written more on this particular subject. Uh, than any reporter. So, Tommy, uh, shout out to you. Great reporting, as always. All right. Um, well, on the top of my mind, as everybody knows from yesterday's show, uh, is the Garda World um, uh, contract that was, it was just reviewed. I think it was Cranes that broke the story originally, but man, um, man, oh man, uh, the uh, the amount of frenzy on this one. Some great reporting. I talked about this yesterday, uh, including uh, Alex Hernandez in Black Club. Shout out to you. So, Rachel, why don't you sort of summarize uh, the situation and uh, what's at stake here with this uh, $29 million contract that the city of Chicago signed with Garda World to uh, build tents for asylum seekers. Go ahead. Yeah, it was a quietly signed contract to house or rather to create these base camps that Mayor Johnson unveiled, I want to say maybe late last week, earlier this week. Um, this is his his big plan to kind of um, address and help migrants move out of police stations, the airports, 
Uh, and so he gives his contract or his administration gives his contract $29 million, over $29 million to Garter World, this like known defense kind of contract or subcontractor. Um, the wrinkle in that plan is that they are kind of playing both sides or not even kind of they're They've been playing both sides. They um, helped uh, bus migrants from Florida under orders and contracts with uh, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. I think here as well as to other like liberal uh, sanctuary cities. Um, and that's, that's where the real snafu has begun. Um, you know, bringing about questions of why wasn't this known? Why weren't they vetted? What the heck happened here? Uh, why give a contract to a place or to a company rather um, that has also been shipping people, um, both uh, whether they know it or not, you know, depending on uh, basically how that's playing out. Um, and so now that's, that's bringing up questions around, okay, you know, they say that they're going to build these tents. They're going to be kind of like yurts. I also want to give credit to the Chicago Tribune. I thought that their story was really, really thorough as well as block club, love block club, big fan of block club. I work there now. Um, but Chicago Tribune really laid out a lot of the details within the contract of what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but within that story and within the contract, I don't think that there are really any details about heat for these things. And as we all know, Chicago winter is terrible <laughs> and uh, and just long and bone chilling. Um, so that's that's a big thing that you got to figure out. Um, Alderman Andre Vasquez uh, of, of the 40th earlier this week in Politico, you know, was saying, why doesn't the city, uh, instead of doing tents, we should be buying up vacant buildings. Um, and, and potentially f- like flipping those buildings to provide housing both to migrants as well as, um, you know, people who are already unhoused. And that that doesn't seem to be the plan. So I think, you know, week after week, you know, we see stories come out about, you know, new arrivals, uh, the humanitarian crisis or humanitarian endeavor, as uh, the mayor wants to call it. Um, but it still doesn't maybe feel like there's a set plan that feels good, that assuages all of the community concerns. Not that anything ever will. But I think that this definitely feels, uh, at least from the people I've talked to, from the reading I've done, like a step backward. Yeah, and uh, let's let's give Allison a shout out at the Tribune uh, and uh, Michelle, the other ones who uh, the Tribune story uh, was excellent. Their coverage was excellent. They got into um, they got into the weeds on a lot of issues, particularly one that they they were the ones who revealed this uh, that the. Uh, the Johnson administration knew about concerns with Garda World before they issued the contract. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so Alice and uh, Dan wrote that and, and exposed that and revealed that. Uh, and um, that led me to conclude, again, it's like me. Uh, this is not as bad as my conclusion about the gunshot at the Comiskey Park, but it's it's my conclusion based on the evidence that I have in front of me, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, if you don't like come out and tell us exactly what's going on, we're left to a certain degree to make to conclusions. It's either the tinfoil hat or a blindfold. I don't know anything. All right. Yeah. Um, but. My conclusion is uh, that uh, the Brandon Johnson administration had no plan uh, and that this was the best they could come up with after four months of being in office. They had no plan. This is me speaking, not Rachel. So it's been from the moment that uh, Mayor Johnson was sworn in in May uh, as the mayor of the city of Chicago, there have been buses coming in from Texas at the very least with most of them Venezuelans. Uh, to, and being 
deposited in Chicago, uh, Governor Abbott, very cynical move on his part with political ramifications. Okay, blue, blue states, you think you're so high and mighty? Here, you deal with these people. That's kind of a very cynical attitude that he's had. And I've always wished, Rachel, and I know this is going to sound naive when I say it, but I've always wished that Democratic leaders in the cities where these uh, the migrants are being bused had said, thank you. Thank you, uh, Governor Abbott. We need people. Chicago's population has fallen tremendously. Our public school population every year for the last 11 years has been gone down. You are helping us, you know? And then in, along with that, have a, uh, a building program along the lines of what uh, Alderman Vasquez is talking about, yeah. in which Chicagoans are working. Like, go to the Fifth Ward. Go to the 21st Ward. Go to the black community in the city of Chicago, where so much of the feeling is that all you do is help other people. You don't help us. Well, this is a no-brainer. Put people to work resettling the uh, the new immigrants. I, I don't know. I... That's my wish. That's my desire, Rachel. But it just doesn't seem like there's anybody in uh, a position of power or authority talking that way. Um, and so that's why we have sort of uh, these stopgap measures like let's just build a bunch of tents and hire these uh, cronies of DeSantis or what have you to do them. What are your thoughts? Go ahead. I do think like with Johnson – Sorry to give on, uh, on one hand this, on the other hand that. But on one hand, you know, this is an inherited issue, one that, you know, Lightfoot, uh, it, this began under Lightfoot, not to put all the blame on. I mean, does, does this really begin under Lightfoot? You know, we could go way, way back. But, you know, the busing began under Lightfoot. And, you know, I, I, she, she didn't say thank you per se, but she was like, we're a welcoming city. We're going to figure this out. You know, there's a lot of political speak around it. There wasn't ever really a plan. Um, and I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. You know, Greg Pratt, I'm sure, has the emails, the text <laughs> telling us there was nothing going on behind the scenes. And, and I would believe that. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, to come into office, and this is one of 20,000 problems the city is yeah. facing. It's, it's also one of the biggest problems the city is facing. So, of course, people want to plan. They want to know what you're doing. They want to see that in the 100-day report. You can't, I don't think that this is something that you can just put into a 100-day report. I don't think that this is something that is going to be able to fix, be fixed in like a month or two months or six months even. I mean, I think that there are so many different layers to it. Some of this is the federal government needs to come in and give more money and, you know, uh, temporary protected status, which I think we'll get to later. But I, I do think that people want to see something better than base camps. People want to see something a little bit better than tents. And I think that that's where, you know, maybe I don't know, again, what was going on behind the scenes, but that's where those conversations would have been important going into the wards and talking to aldermen and like, look, we have a major influx of people. This is what I need from you. You know, and I, I think that sometimes that's how political wheeling and dealing not should work, but often does work. Of Like, I need this from you. Here's what I can give you. What do you think? Um, and I don't know, really, that that happened. Um, and if it did happen, I'm not sure that like, we're seeing like a good result come of it. Um, again, like who knows, you know, I mean, luckily it's still warm outside, but like, I just imagine as the months go on, we're going to need to rethink this plan. And I hope those conversations are happening now. Like, sure. Like announce the base camps announce, you know, that the yurts are coming, but I, I do hope that there are thoughts on like, we have a lot of vacant buildings or vacant land. Like where can we put people connecting them to like jobs and community organizations and whatnot too. So. Yeah. And, uh, 
that point you made about uh, it happening, starting with Lori Lightfoot, you're absolutely correct. Uh, they were, I remember they were coming in while the mayoral campaign was going on because we were already asking the mayoral candidates about this uh, as a, on the campaign trail. Uh, there's no indication to me whatsoever, maybe you know something I don't know, uh, that there was any sort of planning between uh, the outgoing mayor, Lightfoot, and the incoming mayor, Johnson, on this issue. In other words, you, 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 like the notion of like an uh, orderly transition uh, to me means more than just like keeping the files there for uh, Brandon to see. Uh, and uh, I, I get no sense that uh, Mayor Lightfoot sat down, outgoing Mayor Lightfoot sat down with incoming Mayor Johnson and said, look, this is what we're doing now. I don't know. You might think of X, Y, Z. Um, there was so much hostility between those two camps. Rachel, I don't even know if that would have been possible. You know, everybody talks about, oh, let's put aside our political difference for the good of the city. I don't think that's possible. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't I don't think that that happened either. I mean, you know, in the, the texts and emails and stories that we've seen since life had left office, it was a lot of her kind of sulking um, of her, like, not even wanting to go to, I think, like a good, goodbye party for aldermen or something like that, or alder people, council members. Um, so I, I think if you're not willing to do that and even do like a behind the scenes congratulations you're retiring on your own terms whatever I don't think that she would be as willing to have a sit-down conversation of look this is what my team did this is what I think you should do ask me whatever questions you have um I just don't know that Lightfoot was that kind of mayor or outgoing mayor really I think she was just like all right you guys don't want me I'm I'm done here you know I'm gonna do what I have to do for the next month or two but I'm I'm, I'm done to that point uh and we're going to get into the work permit situation, and I haven't forgotten it. But to that point, uh, I took kind of a devilish delight as a, a longtime follower of budget games, uh, how the budget game went down in the city of Chicago. So uh, while she was heading out the door, Mayor uh, Lightfoot made a point of issuing a report or statement. I can't remember what it was now about how healthy the city finances were. Uh, and <laughs> translation subtext, I've done a great job as the financial steward of the city of Chicago, and I'm giving this to Brandon Johnson. So any screw ups that happen are his fault. Mm -hmm. And then four months later or whatever it has been, uh, Rachel, when uh, Brandon Johnson finally releases sort of his preliminary budget statements as we get ready for the budget season, lo and behold, Oh, we're facing a deficit of, I think it's like $500 million. We're a lot worse yeah. off than anybody thought. I'm like, oh, my God, these budget games, they never <laughs> end, Rachel. You hear me? Yeah. It's, the, it's everybody's favorite political game, you know, because most people aren't paying attention beyond, like, the big number that flashes on the, like, you know, TV news or that you read in a paper or whatever. Um so I think that's an easy, easy way to walk out the door and, and kick your successor, you know, if you want to. It's like, I did a great job. I you know, <laughs> didn't, didn't raise tax, whatever, whatever you want to say. And then, you know, the next person gets to come in and be like, actually, you know, we still have problems. Yeah. Uh, and then they get to look like, you know, the jerk. Yeah, I'll tell you what, the, the one of the great players of this game is somebody that you covered uh, for a few years, uh, President Tony Preckwinkle. Man, she could play a budget game over at Cook County. She could play the budget game like... like nobody's uh, business. But, you know, I often wonder, uh, we'll move on. Well, I haven't forgotten work permits, but I often wonder what life would have been like with Tony Preckwinkle as uh, mayor of the city of Chicago. Because, I mean, say what you will about Tony Preckwinkle, and there's a lot of people in my listenership who are mad at her for one reason or another. 
she has a command of government and she understands government in just like a very fundamental way. Uh, and I just kind of wonder how she, I don't, but then again, she's never had a deal with something like busloads of, uh, immigrants from uh venezuela who don't speak english probably just coming in on the daily basis or weekly basis whatever it is so she's never had to deal with anything like that but oh i mean i wonder how i think i your uh your partner in crime over at black club we do this all the time make dumpkey how would tony have handled this how would daily have handled this how would uh uh mayor Rahm have handled yeah. this we, we go through the list so you you covered tony preckwinkle for a while do you have any thoughts about this like how would any of these people have handled uh, what what Brandon Johnson is facing right now? Yeah, no, I agree with you on on Preckwinkle's command of a budget and command of like the wonky details of it. Um, I think that she would have gotten into the weeds and would have hired people who would get into the weeds. Not to say that Johnson hasn't, but I think like you know, speaking about Preckwinkle, that's what I think she did well, um, especially like you know the the Stroger. Uh, what was it? There was a, a penny. Like tax. The petty tax, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that, and then, you know, technically she brought it back, but um, I, I think she would have hired people who understood this issue or who understood like budgeting and, and whatnot. I think she would have already begun, I think, you know, let's say that it was Preckwinkle, not Lightfoot. I think she would have begun trying to understand the city budget, city finances. I think she might have done a lot of layoffs. That's what she did at the county. I think she may have raised taxes and explained to people, if I don't do this now, it's going to be worse later. Um, and I think, you know, now with, with the busting of people, um, I think she would have begun trying to look at, you know, the county's, not the county, the city housing stock and like what buildings do they have, what vacancies do they have and where could they potentially put people so they're not doing, you know, base camps. Because um, that's, I, I mean, I feel like that's basically what is also going on now with the county, you know, county is, uh, there were some stories today, um, you know, there's a county committee looking at a couple of um, uh, buildings within like, I think, Evanston and uh, another uh, another suburb to house people who are unhoused. Um, and I think she probably would do the same thing with migrants. She'd look at where can we put people um, so that they can at least live in, in a more dignified way. Um, so that, I mean, would it have been successful? Like, I don't know. Uh, I, I think the city budgets would, would have probably looked different. And I think, you know, the size of city government probably would have looked different as well. I think people would still be mad about it. I think there's going to be people mad no matter what. But I think that she would have come in and been like, we really need to, as she likes to say, like, write our, our fiscal ship or something of that sort. Um, I, I think she would have really focused on the financial part because having your, your checkbook in order means you can do a lot more stuff later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she would have been, uh, I, I, I could just imagine it too, like, kind of, kind of lecturing at the same time and uh tony explaining you know how yeah, she would yeah. do that like well, you don't really question, really yeah what's that she wouldn't be answering your question directly she'd be answering the question she she would yeah <laughs> oh my goodness tony yeah. was really good at not answering questions rom <laughs> on the other hand this is mixed line would have been having a million press conferences <laughs> you're million just press day. conference here press conference there's going to be a press conference on this, and I'm going to get the credit for everything good, and somebody else will get the blame for it. Yeah. All right. Uh, you mentioned uh, in passing today when we were just talking about the show that the impact of what Joe Biden did, uh, President Biden did the other day in terms of uh, allowing Venezuelans uh, work permits 
And you said that it had potentially big impact, a big potential for the city of Chicago to deal with uh, the situation. Why don't you take the deep dive and explain what you were talking about? Yeah, I really want to, you know, give credit to block clubs, uh, Madison Saavedra. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I always say it and then feel stupid. Uh, basically, like temporary pre- protected status is is one way for people to, it's uh, one signifier um, that allows people to get legal work permits while they're here. Um, and that's been a big thing that people need. Um, you know, people who come here are basically sitting and waiting and wanting to work, but unable to do that. Um, and so uh, allowing people or, or designating people, um, you know, temporarily protected um, allows for them to begin going through that process of getting those work permits. What it doesn't allow is people who came here after July 31st to be able to get those work permits. So it's basically, it's time box. So anybody who came before July 31st is able to go through this process. Um, you know, they, they can begin kind of uh, potentially begin working after they get their permit, but anybody who came after will no longer be able to do that. Um, advocates here, and I would assume across the country, but I've been mostly paying attention to, to what's going on here, um, are upset about that. They're like, we should really expand this, not just all, also to Venezuelans, but also to the, the country's uh, network of immigrants who are able, ready, and willing to work legally, legally within the country. Um, and so now there's there's not really so much a question of if, if that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's mostly just a focus now on, um, you know, the, the massive influx of people we've seen over the past, I believe it's been a year, uh, a little over a year. Um, but, you know, people are, are demanding and wanting more for uh, for migrants. Yeah. And uh, so then there's always the issue of how that plays out uh, politically in terms of the uh, the presidential election. Don't forget, we're right on the eve of uh, 2024 uh, and already. Uh, well, the whole point of Abbott sending the busloads of immigrants to Chicago was to embarrass uh, the Democrats and to embarrass residents of blue cities and blue states. Uh, and so now it, it, as part of this uh, this it's a political attack when they forced Joe Biden to make this move so that it alleviates some of the pressure that uh, Mayor Adams is dealing with in New York and Mayor Johnson is dealing here in Chicago. They forced Biden to make this move. Now they're going to attack him. Now they're going to attack him. So they forced him to make the move. Follow this, Rachel. Uh, and now they're going to attack him for making the move by going, oh, you know, well, he cares more about immigrants uh, than he cares about Americans, real Americans. And uh, this has just been the ploy all along. He wants to take away your jobs, et cetera, and so forth. Whatever political attacks they're coming up. What's your sense of the political ramifications of what Joe Biden did? I think I think you're right. Um, I think he'll definitely be attacked on the right, you know, over the next year or so. I think also he'll be attacked on the left. I mean, we've already seen that um, in New York, or in attacks mostly from New York of like the federal government isn't doing enough. I think we also have seen that here. I think Pritzker and Johnson were both pushing more politely than New York has for these work permits or for this, this status to happen um, so that people can work and, and begin, you know, they can begin trying to uh, clear out these these uh, temporary spaces where people have been living. Um, so I think it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for Biden. Um, and I think that, you know, the next few months um, will, you know, continue to add 
to how this is viewed as people get ready for the election. Um, I think if he expands, you know, protected status, I think that gives a lot of people on the right, you know, even more fodder to go after him. I think if he doesn't, I think the left will be, you know, up in arms about it. Um, or I think some people will be up in arms. I think more people will be like, this is a missed opportunity to help more people. We say that we're, you know, a melting pot, welcoming, blah, 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 blah. All these, you know, political statements. Um, and we're not really living up to that. And so I think that no matter what, you know, Biden faces um, tough questions and, and probably some tough debates ahead, especially around this issue of like, you know, this this makes the Democrats seem ununited, it makes us, not us, but, you know, the country at large seem uh, uh, questionable in terms of like whether or not people can come here and find a place to live and find a place to work and whatnot. And I think it's going to put Democrats on notice about like they seem disorganized and they seem ununified. Um, so I, I think those are going to be some of the big questions that he faces and some of the big issues he faces going into 2024. Yeah, absolutely. And I can just, I'm just speaking for myself here. Uh, my attitude about Democrats is take a position, own the position, move forward. Uh, and uh, I've had debates with listeners all the time. I'm thinking of you, Linda. Uh, there's one particular listener who, whenever she hears me say this, she goes, Ben, not, the, everybody, not everybody in the world views the world the way you do. There are swing voters in the state of Wisconsin and Michigan who might be put off by the policies you're talking about. Uh, shout out, Linda Palm. And um, I'm just like, you know what? This timidity, this trying to play one side to all side, be some kind of win over the middle without offending your base. I'm like, nah, I, it, I don't think it works. I, 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 and I don't think it works political. I don't think it works in terms of solving things. So if you're not willing to take a firm state, like you have this situation where you have thousands of people in the city of Chicago, was it 1,400 or 1,500? So it could be up to 2,000 by the time of the convention. Who knows how many busloads could come in? Uh, between now and you have an immediate ch challenge in front of you and you to deal with it. You can't, in my opinion, just mess around and be worried about what MAGA is going to say or Fox TV is going to say. Uh, you got to take a second. Cause you know what? I listen, I read uh, black club all the time, Rachel. I read it. I'm one of your most loyal readers. Black club is not going to let, let up on this. You get what I'm saying? Like the black clubs, the world, uh, they're not going to say, oh, <laughs> there's not a migrant crisis. You know what I mean? They're not going to stop writing articles about overflowing police stations uh, uh, on the north and south side of Chicago. I, this is an on-the-ground reality. And so, in my opinion, if you don't try to address it, you just you have the worst of all worlds. So that's kind of how I view it. Go ahead. Yeah, I think you know, speaking to the um, having a strong stance, I don't really know that we've seen Biden answer a lot of questions on it, like personally answer a lot of questions on this, like come out and really take a strong stance and say, you know, beyond condemning what, uh, what Republicans are doing. Um, and I think that that's, that's needed, especially going into 2024. Like, again, like there has to be unity, like what you were saying, I, I think people want to see a unified voice, a unified plan of action and one that makes sense. Um, and right now it seems like it's really the cities and local government putting pressure on the federal government and then the federal government kind of giving in, probably because they're doing the same political calculus that we're doing right now. Of like this probably won't look good in 2024. Maybe I should, you know, come out with a statement or do this protected status. And then I think, you know, 
you, you got to do something and let the chips fall where they may rather than ignoring it or not not speaking on it because that looks almost as bad yeah i agree uh it looks almost as bad and i'll stand by what i said the problem's not going to go away you just pretend it, it's yeah. not there all right i want to move on to this topic that uh I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I saw it. I've never seen anything like this in uh, politics. And that's the way uh, President Donald Trump or former President Donald Trump uh, is just so boldly attacking the prosecutors and judges in the various indictment cases and uh, the various cases against him. Uh, there was an article to, in today's, I think it was, I, I sent it to you, it was the New York Times, I think it was, uh, that talked about how the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, is seeking a gag order. Uh, on Donald Trump to try to uh, cease and desist and refrain uh, on making uh, attacks uh, on him and his fellow prosecutors, in particular witnesses uh, in the, uh, the cases against Donald Trump, uh, both the documents case that Smith is prosecuting in Florida and the uh, January 6th case uh, that Smith is prosecuting in Washington. And extraordinary, he cites as evidence uh, in his uh, a plea to the judge for the gag order, uh, uh, threat, life-threatening uh, phone calls, uh, harassing phone calls and emails, et cetera, that prosecutors have received, that witnesses have received every time Donald Trump uh, calls them crooked, corrupt, or uh, says it's a witch hunt. Uh, I am reflecting on, then Donald Trump comes back and goes, well, I have a First Amendment protected right to campaign. Uh, this is all protected by uh, campaign law, and this is more, another indication of the Justice Department stepping in to try to give uh, the election to Joe Biden. And then he goes, he says, so since I'm free to say what I want, witch hunt, and then he denounces judges and witnesses by name. I've never seen any defendant so boldly attack, publicly attack, witnesses and prosecutors and judges with utter contempt and fearlessness. I've never seen it. Uh, and I, I just, I'll stick with political corruption cases. It just, we have a, a ceaseless supply of them uh, in Chicago and Cook County, Rachel. I'm thinking Ed Burke, Michael Joseph Madigan. Uh, who else is right? Danny Solis, uh, Terry That's Link. I mean, yeah. The list goes on and on. None of them are doing what Donald Trump. I, I can you imagine if Michael Madigan started? Well, he doesn't even have a phone, so he can't text. Apparently, uh, so I mean, have you ever seen anything like this? Uh, any kind of behavior like this from a defendant of any kind? No, but I mean, these are these are not normal times, and this is not a normal case. You know, I, I guess I feel like it it makes sense for them to want the gag order. And especially given some of the comments, you know, that were, that were uh, named in the court filings that they, uh, they talk about in the story, you know, they're, they're targeting a judge, you know, they're giving death threats to a judge, um, which is crazy to me. And I think it also makes sense given January 6th, like people are willing to riot and attempt to overthrow the government um, for Donald Trump. And uh, they listen to him and they, and at times uh, take their orders from him. And if he says this judge is corrupt or the system is corrupt and, you know, we got to get Merrick Garland, we got to, you know, make sure Joe Biden doesn't get another term. I could understand why prosecutors think they should listen, um, you know, especially thinking back on uh, January 6th. Um, do you know when this will be decided? I couldn't find that in the story. Uh, no, I did. They didn't specify when it will be decided. 
Uh, and it, it has really put the judge in a, a big bind because, and I'm sure whatever decision she renders will be appealed. So this is part of another legal strategy of Donald Trump just to drag this thing out uh, as long as he can. Uh, but uh, it'll probably go to the uh, Supreme Court. Um, but I, 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 again, I've never seen behavior like this from a defendant, politi- particularly a political defendant uh, or a politician. I just noticed for, well, for instance, uh, today the papers had stories about Robert Menendez, who is a senator from New Jersey, uh, and he's on trial. Uh, he's been uh, indicted on uh, corruption charges, bribery charges, et cetera. I haven't had a chance to read the indictment. Uh, and his initial response was kind of political. It was like, they're picking on me because uh, I'm Hispanic. And uh, so, okay, that falls within what I would definitely think is protected speech in terms of the defendants. This is me speaking, not Rachel. What is, uh, is protected speech for a defendant? But then to go one step further, if he went beyond that, you know, and judge so-and-so is a racist and uh, we take a stand against racism. I mean, then you're like, okay, it, <laughs> you're kind of like really pushing it. Uh, you know, I, but I, like I said, I don't, I don't think he's going to go that far because I think there's only one Trump right now, but maybe I hope it's not contagious. Uh, <laughs> uh, why don't we, uh, before we uh, close it down with a trick question, I'm going to ask you, why don't you take a moment to talk about an article you ran uh, that you wrote about a month ago, which I was negligent uh, not bringing you on the show to discuss because it's a very important article. Uh, and it ran in, uh, I think it might have been the last story you wrote for the BGA before was, you moved yeah. over to Black Club. Uh, so why don't you, uh, address the issue that you raised in that article? Go ahead. Yeah. So Manny Ramos and I, who's also, uh, we work together at Illinois Answers. Um, and he's also now at Block Club, uh, also on the investigative team. We looked into, uh, the city's spending of, uh, federal dollars it received for the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, which was COVID era policy or COVID era uh, attempt to help, uh, cities and municipalities, um, through COVID. And so each place had to put together a plan of how it plans to spend its money. The city uh, planned to put $117 million total, I want to say, toward addressing homelessness uh, through various programs. And we found that the city has spent around um, 15% of the federal dollars it put aside for budgeted programs, um, mostly because uh, officials say um, there's extreme staffing shortages uh, within the nonprofits that they work with. Um, and it takes time to get these these programs up and running. And after spending um, money from a different COVID era, uh, you know, f- funding uh, pot to get more money uh, and, and then figure out how to spend that money was pretty difficult. Um, so ultimately, like we decided to do this story because you know, homelessness, uh, people who are unhoused, living in tents, not able to get housing or jobs or get connected to resources that just feels on the rise. Um, it feels like we're seeing more and more people, not just migrants, um, but just more and more people in general just need housing. And so our question was, you know, what is the city doing or not doing there? Um, this money came in under Lightfoot. Um, so not exactly the Johnson administration, although it does look like the Johnson administration has been spending or trying to spend more of that money, trying to get more of it out the door. Um, you know, the, the city has to, I believe, have a plan for the money. 
uh, by the end of 2024, and then I believe has to spend much of the money by the end of 2026. So there is like a timeline for this that they need to, to you know, figure out and kind of get moving on. Um, you know, they have the plans. There are a couple of new programs that they've like begun or budgeted for, um, but you know, things are slow. So, it, you know, this story, it, just in the uh, bare bones, just <laughs> it like symbolizes so much of the frustration uh, that ordinary citizens have with government. When I say ordinary citizens, it's sort of like a Greg Pratt phrase about people who are not obsessively following government the way you and I do, or Greg Pratt does, or Mick Dumkey, or uh, Manny Ramos, etc. cetera. Uh, and so we know the money exists to pretty much do whatever we want to do. There's so much money. I forget how many millions of, did you say it's over a hundred million dollars uh, just for this one aspect, COVID related homelessness, just one aspect of a hundred million dollars. They've spent 15% of that. Uh, so, well, I'm going to show you my mastery of math. That means 85% of it is still out there. It's probably over a hundred million dollars uh, is out there willing to be, spent. I don't know where it's, by the way, that's the whole other thing. Like, where is this money? You know what I mean? Like, I, I guess it's been earmarked, but that doesn't mean it's like, actually they took a hundred and what, 20 million and put it in a bank account. You know what I'm saying? It's my guess is, is that the feds have allocated, uh, allocated this for Chicago. Then Chicago has to show a program of how they intend to spend it. Uh, and then the feds reimburse Chicago. I, I, my, that's my guess. But the point is it's, it's just like, there is money there to take care of our homeless needs. That's just this kind of underscores it, Rachel. But it's it's like overwhelming to get the program set up to spend the money. And it, I think that just the frustration that people have when they see an oppressing need in their neighborhood. Uh, and then they have to go, the person in front of them to explain it is generally the alderman. And and he goes, I only have a million dollars in my menu budget. I have yeah. I have no money. I'm like, what about, and then they'll say, what about this article I read at a BGA where there's $115 million? You know what I'm saying? It's just like the frustration that is symbolized uh, by the story you and Manny did. I just think it speaks to where, well, it's not just where we're at now, but where I think we've always been like the inability of government to meet the needs of people, even though they have the resources. That was my takeaway. Your thoughts. Yeah. To back up a little bit, I just want to clarify that, you know, the city has budgeted $52 million of this money so far for these programs. So that's like rapid rehousing. That's like stabilization and a bunch of other things. But I mean, I think that you, hit on basically our, our feeling while we were reporting on this story and, and the feelings of people that we spoke to in this story. So we spoke to organizations who are trying to do this work, who are on the front lines and who are saying like, it can take a long time for us to be repaid. Um, you know, like we have these programs, but if we, you know, don't get paid by the city or if we don't get paid in a timely manner, that really affects who we're able to help and how often we're able to help them. Um, and, you know, we also spoke to people who are unhoused currently who just say, like, the city hasn't been helpful to them in terms of, like, helping them get housed. They're like, you, you sit on a wait list. You can sit on a wait list for years for housing. 
Um, and I, you know, that's not just a Chicago problem. That's not like unique here. Like that's everywhere, but it's still just so harrowing and frustrating to hear about people who are like, I want a job. I understand that a job, you know, to, to get a job, I need to get an ID card and to get an ID card, I need housing. And so for me to not be able to have housing means I can't do any of those other things to be a like, quote unquote, productive member of society. And I think that often people, or not even people, but I, I mean, I think that there's like a misconception that, you know, if, oh, if people are homeless, then like they did something to get themselves there. And, you know, you can argue about that. You can say what you want there, but I don't think anybody who is homeless wants to be homeless. And I think that like there needs to be something done to help people. And, you know, the frustration around it comes from, you know, yeah, like what our story uncovered is like, okay, there's money. Why isn't the money being spent? And then hearing the responses to that and feeling like, you know, when you talk to organizations or when you talk to people who are unhoused, feeling like those two things don't, don't mesh, you know, like I, I'm sure if, I'm sure people, it's, it's a situation like help us help you so we can help more people. Um, and, and that just still doesn't seem to be working. Um, I don't know if it's just like a, a miscommunication, lack of communication or what, but it just doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah. Uh, and well, maybe the solution is to put Tony Preckwinkle in charge of everything. Okay. Uh, she's really good at stuff like this. I got to admit. Uh, and even if she never answers a question and she ducks and dodges and filibusters and talks about other yeah. things. Like, uh, but this is something that she would be good at. No doubt. All right. Here's the, uh, the closing question. No ducking, no dodging. Uh, uh, Rachel Hinton. I don't, I want to what I don't want to see you uh, you pull a JB Pritzker at me and dance around this one all right yeah. uh and I owe this question to producer Chris he threw it at me before he came on uh so Senator Richard Durbin has joined the chorus uh in the Senate calling for the return of a dress code uh Chuck Schumer did away with a dress code and immediately John Fetterman the senator from Pennsylvania started dressing like Ben Jarofsky uh right. and <laughs> only you can only be like a lefty podcaster in your attic overlooking an alley if you want to dress uh that poor <laughs> John Fetterman uh so I'm I'm mixed on this one uh Rachel who am I okay and you've seen me you've seen you know how I dress who am I to criticize John Fetterman or Anyone they dress, I am maybe the worst. And it's so funny. I'm going to give a shout out to my wife. She's an incredibly stylish woman, and she stuck with me as a husband. Uh, so uh, I am the last person in the world with any credibility to uh, criticize someone for the way they dress. That being said, believe it or not, I believe they should return the dress code to the Senate. Uh, I like the fact that there are some places in the world where there's a certain element of decorum. I completely understand all the the, the, the funny little memes that I've seen. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're so hilarious. I love every one of them. Uh, you know, making fun of the people who want to bring the dress code back, but they they at the same time they want to ignore all the problems in the world. So I get it. I get the joke. That said, as big a schlub as I am. Bring back the dress code. All right. No ducking, no dodging. The Rachel Hinton position on this all-important issue. Go. I think it. I think my answer kind of comes back to, like, respectability politics. And I don't think that it should be about what you wear on the Senate floor for people to take you seriously. Um, I also think that, like, I think it wasn't until, like, the 90s that women were allowed to wear pants on the Senate floor. And that just feels ridiculous to me. Um, I, I think that there's, to me, 
it, it shouldn't matter what you're wearing, what your hairstyle is, like whatever else for you to be able to do your job. And I think often that for me feels a little dog whistly sometimes of like, well, if you're not dressed in a suit and tie and dress shoes and you're not getting them polished, you know, in the basement of the Senate or whatever, then I'm not going to take you seriously. You should still take me seriously. Like somebody voted me into this office. You got to deal with me. We got to do the job. Uh, so I, I think that it doesn't, it shouldn't matter. I, I, th- I think I'm a no on the Senate dress code, which I, I'm trying to, to be asked this, so. <laughs> I'm trying to decipher your answer to come to a yes or no, but yeah, I do no, believe. I'm, I'm a no on the Senate dress code. I think that it, it shouldn't matter. I think that ultimately what should matter is how much they get passed um, and if they get stuff passed. And I will be very curious to see um, one of this remains, because I think there's now some like debate even, even among Democrats and also, um, is this going to have any effect? Like John Fetterman showing up in a full, like, let's say he decides to like show up in a velour sweatsuit. Is that going to like pause the Senate and pause the Senate discussion or debate on a bill? Like it shouldn't, he wants to be comfortable. He's still yeah. going to do his job. He still showed up. There's some people who don't show up, especially during election years. Cause they're like doing whatever else, you know, yeah. and they can be dressed in a suit, but they're not doing their job. Yeah. And there's other people who are completely incapacitated when they show up. There's that issue as well. Uh, and Mitch McConnell, Diane Feinstein. I, I, you know what? Uh, listen to what you said here. I'm like a flag in the breeze on this one. I go, well, Rachel made a pretty compelling argument there. I can see myself fluttering the other way. I'm all over the map on this one, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I will push back a little bit. He goes, all that matters is what they pass. And this is something I tell uh, McDumkey all the time. The, half the stuff they pass or stuff nobody, I wouldn't want them to pass in a million years. Uh, because I used to have this argument that with Mick and other people about Bernie Sanders, and they'd be like, Bernie never passed anything in the Senate. I go, because it's all lefty stuff. Nobody's going to – you know, it's like stuff that would help people. That's not the stuff that gets passed in this country, you know? It's yeah. like, hey, we need another corporate tax break. That's what we'll pass. So, uh, I want to amend it to it, – it matters if you show up to do your job or, or show up to, to do the job that people elected you to do. And if you do that, then I think you should get to dress, you know, how you want to. Okay. You know what? Under, uh, listen, I'm going to end this by showing how open-minded I am. Uh, Some would say (laughs) baseless. I'm going back. I'm with Rachel. She convinced me. I would vote no. Okay. I'm I'm sorry, Richard Durbin. And I say this, like, I hate ties. Oh, my God, (laughs) Rachel Hinton. I hate ties, jackets. Too stuffy. I just, uh, the thing on the neck, I don't know, man. I just, uh, I've never liked ties. And when I, like, well, I don't, people don't even wear ties. I went to a wedding a couple of weeks ago and, like, ties. I didn't wear a tie. Nobody, I mean, a lot of people weren't wearing ties. I'm like, wow, the world caught up with me on this one. Uh, <laughs> I, I hate ties. I love shorts. I love sneakers. What can I tell you, Rachel? I'm a little hippie. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's so much fun talking to you, Rachel. And thanks for coming on the show. We'll have you back doing uh, great work. She's part of that team with McDumkey, Manny Ramos. They put together his team over there. Uh, Curtis Lawrence. Mina Bloom. Yes. yes. And uh, 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 at Black Club doing some kick-ass stuff. And uh, so uh, shout out to you. Congratulations on your new gig. And uh, hope to see you about a month or something to bring you back. All right. Cool. Thanks for having me. All right, that's the great Rachel Hinton. I'm Ben Jarofsky. I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. 
And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show. He's always up to something. And like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.